is a storyline that I'm interested in. I was not prepared for that. I was like, <gasps> Lauren Patton, Celia Rose Gooding, and Antonio Cipriano on this three-part harmony is everything that I want. I just want to talk Diablo. Like, what <laughs> was the thought process here? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Off to Broadway, the podcast where we deep dive into anything and everything musical theater from the comfort of my car. I'm Tara. I'm Stefania. And in today's episode, we're talking all about Jagged Little Pill. We are still practicing social distancing. We are out of the car, as you can hear in this episode, but we want to bring some positivity and do a little review on Jag Little Pill because we got to see the show in December before Broadway shut down. And unfortunately, although now it's not playing, it is something that is living off of its cast recording. So we thought that now would be the perfect time in the midst of this Broadway shutdown to finally talk about our experience at Jag Little Pill. And we hope it'll be back on Broadway soon-ish. We do. Once, once everyone's safe and good. Yes. So to start this episode, I feel like we can't talk about Jag Little Pill without talking about the origin of this musical, which is the album with the same title, Jag Little Pill by... Our Canadian icon, Alanis Morissette. Do you have a relationship with Alanis before this musical? Um, I have always loved the song, You Oughta Know. It's just one of those songs that whenever it comes on the radio, even if I wasn't... Like, let's say this right now. Jagged Little Pill came out in 1995, so I was one years old. <laughs> so I never listened to it then. There's always, like, songs that I've listened to. Hand My Pocket, You Oughta Know. But I was never... I don't think I would say that I was a huge fan of Alanis. I just mm-hmm. enjoyed the music, but I wouldn't seek it out. What about you? I would say probably a bit more of a fan than you. I grew up listening to my dad always really loved like Canadian music and really instilled that love in us as well. So we always grew up listening to Alanis and a lot of other Canadian artists. And Jagged Little Pill was one of those uh, seminal albums. The song You Ought to Know, we used to play it on rock band a lot. That's great. Um, and I will also say that Alanis is a surprising hit at karaoke. Mm-hmm. Someone does Hand in My Pocket at karaoke and everyone is like hailing a taxi cab together. <laughs> it's very exciting. So we should say that Jagged Pill the Musical has really nothing to do with Alanis Morissette other than the fact that obviously this is her music, but it is not a biopic musical, which I think a lot of people were confused about when this show was first announced. I know when I had told coworkers that I was going to see it, in December with you, everyone was like, oh, that's so interesting, a story about her life. I'm like, oh, no, it's not a story about her life. (laughs) And at that point, obviously, we hadn't seen it, but we had read that the storyline was kind of messy because we had heard about their out-of-town in Boston. In Boston at ART. The storyline of the show, I think, there's so many things that are going on, but I would think to say that the the main storyline is about that family. Oh, for sure. There's just so many offshoots coming out of that family. Yeah. And so and weaving into so many different directions. Just as a quick sort of synopsis, it is a story, as we said, about the family, the Healy's. Um, there's a mom, two kids and a dad. The mom, Mary Jane, she had some sort of a car accident, I think. Yeah. And she 
was taking pain medication again, and then she ends up getting addicted to the pain medication. But at the same time, she's trying to be that perfect mother for her children. You know, we have like Derek Lana that's in the show that is like your perfect kid. He's going to Harvard. And we have uh, Sally Rose Gooding, who plays Frankie, who's her daughter. And she's a teen but is sort of like rebelling against her family. She's adopted um, and she is the only black member of the yeah. family. And so she kind of struggles that her parents don't quite understand what that means. Mm-hmm. And then the husband, Steve Healy, is just like kind of there. He's part of the family, but he's not really such a huge part for us. So is is he a workaholic or I mean, is... Does he just not love his wife as much? I don't know. It's just like kind of a confusing relationship. So they're the main people in our storyline. I think when the show first started, we thought it would be either just, you know, a story about the mother and her struggles. But that would sort of be a straight comparison to like a next to normal. Next to normal is a much more focused version of -hmm. what this show ended up being. This show ended up being very unfocused, I felt. Yes. So... I think the fact that there are so many storylines throughout the show is what confused the audience. And it's interesting to have such great music like they have in this show because you sort of can distract yourself from this super messy storyline because you're having a great time listening to the music in the show. But we also get, yes, her daughter Frankie is rebelling, but she is also exploring whether she is bisexual so she begins the show in a relationship with joe and then she a relationship would be a strong word i would say well she would say that it's a strong word joe what thought for joe sure. would say relationship but frankie i don't think would use the word relationship yeah and then she ends up in again relationship quote-unquote with phoenix apart from frankie's storyline we also have her brother nick's storyline played by Derek Lana, who as i said is that perfect student and his friend group and He is friends with Bella, who's played by Catherine Gallagher. And this is where the storyline takes, like, a huge turn. They go to a party. Derek Lennon gets accepted to Harvard or wherever he's going. And he doesn't want to go, but decides that, you know, it's his, like, one last night off and he should spend it with his friends. And we find out the next day that at this party, Catherine Gallagher was raped. Yes. um, And it becomes kind of a he said she said situation um between bella and andrew who is nick healy's best friend and a lot of people don't believe bella but it comes out that nick actually saw it happen Mm -hmm. and only when he goes to the police and says what he saw do people start believing her yeah so that was not a quick synopsis, but... <laughs> no. I don't think there is a quick synopsis. No. I mean, I think if you're going to give a quick synopsis that you would say that this storyline is based on the Healy family and, like, their struggles, but that's basically okay. it. <laughs> so I think that we should talk about performances, which I know is, like, an early part for us because normally we save performances to the end, but I think that the characters in this musical are not super strong, but the actors that are playing them are amazing. And I think it's one of the reasons that we went to go see Jackie Pill is because there's a lot of people that we like in this cast. We're really excited about the cast. And even when we talk about the show, we don't use character names. We use the actors' names. And I always think that's a sign that the characterization isn't super strong when you see the actors through it so strongly. I definitely agree. So let's start with our main character, I would say, 
who is Mary Jane, played by Elizabeth Stanley. She is someone that I wasn't super familiar with before Jag Little Pill. And I'm kind of sad that I didn't know who she was because I feel like I've been missing out on her voice for a long time. It's amazing. Was not prepared. Yeah, we were definitely shocked. There are two new songs in this musical and she gets one of them, Smiling, which is a song that I didn't love live but it's one I mean I loved everything that was happening around that song live but the song itself I didn't really care for but then I listen to it all the time now she sounds so beautiful and that song is really great and Alanis also released a version super recently of her singing it The staging of that song is one that we're kind of obsessed with. It was really very beautiful to watch this whole scene happen. And then during the staging of Smiling, um, she moves through that whole day backwards again. Mm-hmm. Um, because she is, that's when she's buying drugs? Is that yeah, she's, she's sort of getting back into taking drugs. We assume that she had a history of maybe drug abuse in the past when she was younger yeah like before the car accident i think so it's never really explained no the only reason why i say that is because we find out at the end of this musical that she was also sexually assaulted so they kind of hint at the fact that she's used drugs to help her through hard times before and that's why it was so easy for her to fall back into this pattern which mm-hmm. i will say that scene staged of her rediscovering the drugs, taking the pills, and as you said, going through her day is really kind of stunning. And it's a combination, I feel like, of direction and choreography. And one of the best things in that song is when they move backwards. Do you remember the guy that was jumping rope? Yeah, he had to jump rope backwards. Really, <laughs> the they had like it did it did feel like in the scenes leading up everything was kind of overstaged like you saw people very purposefully walking by and like on their cell phone or like doing specific things and i'm i was like why are they so specifically and like blatantly staging this and then when they started to move backwards it was so that you remembered it so when they did it backwards you got yeah. it immediately it was really smart it was really smart they they did it really well and it felt like something that had been in that show from the very, very beginning, one of the first like visuals that they had and that they worked really hard to refine it. Yeah. And it was very successful visually. There are aspects of the scene that play out super well. I think the scene before it is such an annoying 2019 scene of all of these women in a coffee shop just being brats, basically. It, it <laughs> felt very basic. Yes. Like, unoriginal. Okay, I get it. I don't know. It, it wasn't... It just felt like a scene I've seen a million times before. Yeah. She is a woman who is feeling the pressure of her, of society and the people around her to conform. And I think that's what that scene was there to represent. But it was just so unoriginal. Yes. Also, like, all the way down to the costumes. They're all just wearing, like, yoga pants and sunglasses. And they're at their most expensive coffee shop. And I think to show that she doesn't fit into that crowd is one thing. But the lead up to such an emotional song just, like, didn't really work for me. Because everything after that, it was like, oh, this is awesome. We did not need this coffee scene. So I don't know about you, but for me, 
Elizabeth Stanley has three standout moments in this show. Smiling is one, which is when we're sort of getting into her characterization a little bit of what's going on in her mind. Her second moment, I would say, is Forgiven, which is the Act 1 finale. We were surprised at the time that it was the Act 1 finale because the song before it, Wake Up, is so strong. The moment at the end of Wake Up, I think it was the four family members singing in harmony, but like really high. I was not prepared for that. I was like, (gasps) yeah, (laughs) it was beautiful. So we were, we were surprised. We we're like, oh, this is still yeah. happening. Oh, we're still happening. Yeah. We're still going? Okay. So then for Forgiven, she enters the church and she has this just huge, I'm going to call it a power ballad because that's kind of what it is. The end of that song is so good. Her voice is unbelievable, and again, that's one that I think because at that point we're like, wow, Act 1 is super long, like, what's happening here? Let's go. So I was sort of confused about everything that was happening at that point, but when you listen to the cast album as much as I have, and I'll say now that since we saw Jagged in December, I have listened to that cast album for basically three months straight. It is such a good cast recording. The orchestrations are amazing, which we'll get into later in this episode, but that song specifically is one that really shines through on that album, and I feel like if I were to see Jagged again on stage, I would be paying closer attention to the staging of that song because of how much I love it now. Yeah, it is interesting because we did very purposefully not listen to the cast recording before we went and saw the show because it had already been out. So the songs we were for the most part familiar with, but the orchestrations of them and how they were used in the story was what was new to us. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing something for the first time, you know, we weren't expecting Forgiven in that moment. Whereas now knowing that it was coming, it would be like paying more attention to certain details or certain vocal choices or certain staging moments that I don't think we were that first time. Mm -hmm. And then that last song to round out the character of Mary Jane is Uninvited. But you, you're not allowed. You're uninvited and unfortunate. I feel like you would agree that the staging of that song is also unbelievable. It is really stunning to have her watch herself and sing and watch herself in that double of herself. And I also love that they parallel it to Bella in Predator, I believe, Mm -hmm. where she watches herself at the party um, in that being sexually assaulted and raped. And I love that they kind of draw a parallel between these two characters, especially after Mary Jane tells Bella that she went through something very similar when she was in college and how she handled that experience and how, because 20 plus years later, Bella has the opportunity to handle it a little bit differently 
but at the same time, the attitudes haven't changed very much. And I just love the parallel between those two characters and how they're both the only two characters who are allowed to step out of themselves and watch themselves. And I thought it was a very powerful visual. And I love that they used it more than once. Mm-hmm. And But that's also interesting because she also wanted to protect her son, right? So she mm-hmm. originally was like, no, don't go to the police because it's going to ruin your reputation. And I don't think it was until she had that conversation with Bella that she started to think about everything that happened to her in her past that she realized that, well, this is the wrong thing to do, obviously. But specifically in Uninvited, it's the overdose scene. And... It's legitimately an overdose that's playing out on stage. Just to jump off of what you said about how both Bella and MJ get those looking at themselves moments, the dancer that plays both of those characters is the same. And to see, especially in Uninvited, she was basically like throwing herself all over that stage. And I don't think I've ever seen choreography like that in a Broadway show. It felt very, you know, like, so you think you can dance, but not necessarily musical theater extravaganza, which is amazing. I did enjoy the choreography of the show very much. The choreography in the show is done by Sidi Larby Cherkawi, and it's choreography and movement. And I really feel the movement very strongly. I saw a lot of the ensemble members were dancers, but a lot of them weren't dancers first. They were actors and movers first. And they as I've said before, embodied the 90s spirit of Alanis's music and of the Jagged Little Pill album and kind of like the anger that is pent up in that album. We saw them embodied by them. And I loved the looks that they were sporting. Oh my God, so good. The bandanas, <laughs> the eyeliner. Very grunt, the plaid. The plaid. The like the shorts fishnets. with like the fishnets. Yeah. Uh, they just had a lot of good looks. And I loved the way... The first, they're the first people you see in the show during the overture, which, oh my God, the overture. <laughs> we, I want to talk about the overture in a bit because okay. it's so good. So let's finish on choreography and then we'll get to the overture. So at the beginning, when they come out, they're the ones who are putting you in the mood for this show and doing very like 90s movies. It felt like they're at a concert, at an Atlantis concert, maybe rocking out to the music and getting you as the audience ready for what they're doing. And every time they came out in their 90s looks... It was very easy to understand that they were not on stage. They were like the Greek chorus trying to convey the emotion to the audience. But then they'd come out in their, you know, I don't know, barista look or their therapist look. And they'd be um, in the scene and in the show. And it was like a very easy delineation to draw. But I just felt the choreography had so much energy. Mm -hmm. And it was so fun. It felt like rough almost. It didn't feel super clean or super um, sharp. It felt like kinetic it was it it really excited me I really loved what he did with the choreography in the show yeah it's also interesting because when we saw the show and after we left we were like wow that ensemble is really giving everything to this show working hard yeah they really they really were and this is something that I feel like I always say this where is the ensemble award at the Tony Awards because it truly (laughs) is something that is not appreciated as much as it should be. And this ensemble works super hard and it's great specifically in songs like Uninvited and in Predator when you have that one ensemble member that gets that chance to really shine through. But also on the flip side of that, you know, these ensemble members are also moving the set pieces along, which is not something mm-hmm. that you see so much anymore because not everything is sort of, you know, like electronic or technology is moving sets on and off. So to watch someone, you know, twist a set piece so that it moves a certain way or move a light box because there's so many light boxes in this musical. 
it's really using your stage so well and using your actors. They're working just as hard as the leading players for two hours and 30 minutes. So I agree. The choreography was such a standout to us. And I also think that because of the shows that we saw on that trip, it was sort of mm-hmm. like subdue choreography for, you know, like, I mean, not West Side, West Side Story wasn't subdued, but it was definitely contemporary. And then Oklahoma mm-hmm. was not like any choreography that we see in anything else. And then you hit Jagged, you're like, wow, love this. We are rocking out with this ensemble <laughs> and I just want to jam with them all the time. It was mostly uh, like interesting choreography that we saw. I would say the most conventional choreography we saw was Moulin Rouge. Oh, yeah. Um because, you know, with a West Side Story, with a Jagged Little Pill, with an Oklahoma, all of them, I felt, used choreography in an interesting way. I don't think a Moulin Rouge-style choreography would work in a Jagged Little Pill, So because the music is so different. So they had to find a way, or they didn't have to, but they found a great way to use the ensemble to enhance the music and enhance the story they were telling. And I loved that there were, I think, two female dancers, I don't even know their names, but that would step forward and do like the big like solos in the dance yeah in the dance moments um and i really loved those featured moments um as well as the whole ensemble dancing together mm-hmm. i also just think to watch your actors legitimately having fun on stage oh yeah is so great that's great yeah it really is it's it seems like a really tight knit group and they're clearly loving what they do every night, and that really makes a difference as an audience member. So before we go into other performances, I think that we need to talk about the beginning of the show and the thing that really made us <laughs> fall in love with this musical, which is the singing overture. And we do not get this very much. No, I just remember saying, uh, imagine if there was an overture and then it started. I know. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> And then ended with a huge title card. Yes. You got like a little hint of You Ought to Know by Lauren Patton. And the band was wheeling into, I love when you can see the band. Mm-hmm. And the band is looking at the audience like, we're here. Yes. We're doing it. I think they came in from the sides and then like moved back and sunk down. And like, I don't know if I made that up or not. But then they came in a right. few other times. Yeah. The band also having a great time jamming out on living, stage. Living, living. That's great music to play every night. That is not boring music to be playing all the time. That is like, you feel like a rock star playing that every night. Yeah. And I also think that because of that overture, it gave us a taste of what the orchestrations were going to sound like. So shout out now to Tom Kitt, who reorchestrated all these Alanis songs with Alanis and her partner, Glenn Ballard. I mean, she wrote two new songs for this musical. So for those songs, but also giving a reorchestration. Now, if you read reviews, on this show a lot of people would say that these orchestrations sound very glee but I mean why is that a bad thing <laughs> I think there is a risk in jukebox musicals in sounding glee because the cast recording of Moulin Rouge sometimes sounds very glee to me as well shut up and dance <laughs> shut, that is like the most glee moment of that whole cast recording I love it but th- th- it's not a diss but I think sometimes it does sound too polished. Mm -hmm. I think cast recordings in general sound very polished nowadays, and I do wish they had more energy that's captured 
um, on stage. But I don't feel that way as much about the Jagged Little Pillcast recording. Yeah, I also think, I mean, I don't know the logistics in this, but imagine recording a cast album live. Oh my God, that would be so exciting. But yeah, the crowd noise and the... Like, I know that they exist because like Dreamgirls had their cast recording live because yeah. the audience is fully cheering. But I think a show like Jagged would be so cool because of how much audience interaction there are, especially for like a You Ought to Know moment. It felt like a rock concert in there for so much of it. I also think that the flow of this cast album is really good, specifically at the very beginning, you know, when it goes from the overture right into right through you and then to... All I really want. I, I do love that they kind of use other Alanis songs to kind of cut between scenes. I the random one I love is so pure at the the party. party. Yeah. It's so it's such just a minute long on the cast recording and I just jam to it. I love it. And I also think that there are some reviews that are saying that it sort of made specifically songs like So Pure or Not the Doctor because those are Alanis songs that have been chopped down and used as scenes. And I know that a lot of Alanis hardcore fans are not super happy about that, but we need to take ourselves out of that this is not the Alanis Morissette Jagged Little Pill album from 1995. This is the Jagged Little Pill musical that came out in 2019. So it's just different. And different is not always a bad thing. It can be great. They definitely had to be repurposed. When you're doing a jukebox musical, you are kind of limited in the songs you have to use. And there are certain songs that have to be there no matter what. So you kind of have to tailor your story to be able to put those songs in there. And so that little snippet of Not the Doctor you know, they had to create a therapy moment for it. Mm -hmm. or, or let's say So Pure, it's not relevant to the story, but it's just for them to dance to yeah. for a minute to set the stage. So it is interesting what gets important story moments and what just gets like a little nod, be like, you're here too. Yeah, I also think that the orchestrations on Alanis's album doesn't fit into this musical. No, you know, Alanis's album is pretty stripped down. It is a rock it's just a band playing with her as opposed to a full Broadway orchestra, though this I don't think this is a huge Broadway orchestra. And the amount of voices on these songs and the amount of different voices on these songs versus one person's album mm -hmm. just with one specific voice. Mm -hmm. You know, the orchestrations or the way the songs were written for just her voice is just not going to work for someone like a Derek Klenna whose voice is so much lower. And you're going to have to like repurpose those songs for the actors and for the story you're telling. So I think to contrast that, the one that sort of seems to be the joke of this show, quite literally on stage, is ironic. And it's been the joke forever, though. Yeah, it has been the joke forever. But I think that in terms of critic reviews, they seem to think that it's really on the nose. But I feel like that's the point. That is what the song is about. And let me be the first to say that I love that song in this musical. <laughs> I think it's so fun. I think that Celia and Antonio sound so good on it. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? A little too I don't know. I have no critiques about that. I mean, the scene is super cheesy, obviously. Yes. I really think you could not do this musical without that song. Because no. that is 
probably Alanis's That and You Ought to Know are her probably two most well-known songs. And for the past maybe 10, 15, 20 years, people have been saying it's not really ironic. But I can't imagine an organic story moment for that song to come up. So I like that they're kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, yeah, we know this isn't ironic, but just playing with the audience expectations of it. And I think they did a really good job in integrating it without making it seem too, too, too contrived. Yes, I totally agree. And I also think, as I said, the vocal moments in that song are really good. So to jump off that, let's talk about the character of Frankie, played by Sally Rose Gooding, who also someone that is brand new onto the scene. She, for anybody that does not know, is LaShawn's daughter, which LaShawn's is a queen. True queen. Yeah. (laughs) And her voice is very interesting. She is very strong. She's a very strong singer. And she's young and having a good time. And I think that she really loves being in this musical. And I think that she does a good job with the character that was written for her, as flawed as I think that character is. Well... They're all flawed. I mean, she's, what, 19 years old? Yeah. I think she was born in the year 2000. So she is really... I love teens playing teens on Broadway. Yes, I think it's so fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the best. And so just to say she's 19 now, but when the musical was started to being developed in 2016, 2017, and it was always her playing that character, and she was 16, 17 years old creating this character, I think she really gave the character the voice of a teenager Mm -hmm. and I love that that voice has stayed true the whole time this cast is there and her character does feel young does feel like a bit of a bratty teenager which she is Mm -hmm. she definitely is and I think that we get that right from the very beginning during all I really want and her relationship with MJ her mom is not good and I don't know that it's ever been great it doesn't seem like they've ever really gotten along because you know Derek Lena is perfect kid and I mean he's perfect in real life too so that is just a given and she's always been second to him no matter what the good things I'll say about her character because as we've said this musical is a little bit messy the book is not awesome sorry Diablo Mm -hmm. Cody we're gonna get there (laughs) (laughs) but to have this flawed teenager who's super angsty and to give her those angst numbers but also give her those powerful solos i think it's a really smart choice and that is showcased for sure in unprodigal daughter She's hitting some notes there that are pretty amazing. And although I don't love the setup of how that all plays out, you know that it's on Prodigal Daughter solo moment, then it's Predator solo moment, and then it's You Ought to Know solo moment. (laughs) I don't love that, but I think to give her that solo is great. And it's also something that we talked about in our Wait to Early Tony nominations, although all of that is up in the air right now. But there was a conversation of whether she would be considered in lead or featured. And I think you can argue either way that the character of Frankie is super present in this musical and you've got a powerhouse in Celia playing her. So For sure. I think it did, uh, just to clarify, I think it did end up on the side that she's going to end up in featured. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens with the Tonys this year, nobody knows. (laughs) But I think the classification, the decision was that she would be in featured. Yeah. 
and Elizabeth Stanley in lead. And then obviously one of the reasons that we ended up going to Jagdville Pill in the first place was to see everybody's Broadway boyfriend, Derek Lana. <laughs> he's such a cutie. He's such a sweetheart. In his uh, Vejas on stage. Oh, I could talk about the shoes <laughs> as soon as I saw them because I've been talking about Vejas for 100 years. Yeah. I was like, look at those shoes. <laughs> I'm like confident that when he sat at that kitchen table in the opening number, you were like, oh my God, he's wearing Vejas. <laughs> <laughs> I've sent you pictures of I no, we, we looked at his wardrobe online. Sometimes he's wearing Converse. We, we did spend like maybe an hour one day trying to figure out his shoe evolution. Yeah. Because I think at ART he was wearing Converse, but then during the bows, during Broadway he's wearing Converse, but at the beginning he starts in the Vegas. Yeah. And, it's very interesting. And here's the thing. I know that this is also an important topic to a lot of people. So if anyone wants to create a Broadway wardrobe, maybe Instagram account. Like, I need to know where the jeans from Oklahoma are from. I really need yeah. to know. <laughs> the stuff that store bought, we would like to know. Yes. We really would. Back to Derek Lena. So I've seen him before. I saw him in Anastasia. And he is one of those people that, like an Aaron Tveit, I think he's a perfect singer. And he really just can hit some notes that he shouldn't be able to hit with ease. And he does them effortlessly. So I love him we also love him from dogfight i think that was yeah, everyone's introduction yeah he was a baby playing a, a real baby because yeah it was because then he went straight into wicked's 10th anniversary and we just did the 16th anniversary so yeah oh my god he was so young and then bridges he oh, also did bridges oh my god bridges yeah that was after he left wicked to do bridges in madison county yeah though do i ever listen to him on that cast recording no i don't <laughs> Kelly O'Hara and Stephen Pasquale only. Yeah. Um, That's it. But for someone that started off his life as just super into baseball, getting a baseball scholarship and ending up as like a musical theater star. I love that. And I also feel like that's where his bromance with Antonio Cipriano comes from. Yeah, it is funny that they're both baseball bros. Yeah. I I don't think he is that dissimilar to his character that he plays no. in Jagged Little Pill. I, we don't know him personally, like who actually knows. Yes, we do. But <laughs> yeah, we're best friends. We're secretly best friends. Um, but I do think the idea that he is this perfect guy, athletic, smart, that kind of comes across as how he maybe was in high school. And then, you know, having to make decisions whether to go into theater and maybe go off the beaten path. Oh my God, is he Troy Bolton? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not he seen? He is the real life Troy Bolton. Have you not seen this before? That Derek Lena is the real life Troy Bolton? <laughs> no, that just came to me. <laughs> Let, let's bring High School Musical to Broadway, and obviously he would star. He would need to grow it, his now. hair a bit. No, he could do Gotta it. Gotta get the swoop. I would see it Gotta get if the he swoop. was in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just to to actually use the term perfect, he sings the song perfect in this musical, which is a song that I feel like isn't super different from the way that Alana sings it. Obviously, it's from the perspective of a male now, but that is quite early in the musical, and it really shows everybody that does not know who Derek Lana is, his singing chops. With everything I do for you The least you can do is keep quiet Be a good I think he does sound really gorgeous and that's on the cast recording it's like a like a sleeper hit on the cast recording for me but I also think it's very interesting he's one of the only ones to get to sing a song without any ensemble support yeah just sings it 
alone. Most of the other solo songs, even though they're solos, the ensemble comes back to back them up and like fill out the song, but he sings that completely alone. And I think, I mean, I don't know if it was a specific choice, but I kind of love the choice to have it be just him. Yeah. Because I feel like he feels very isolated and not supported or not even not supported, but not like he has no one to turn to, to talk about what he's actually feeling with. And so that's just like an internal monologue and there's no one around him that understands him. And I think that's kind of what they were going for with him singing that song completely alone when his mom comes out and he's gone like they've just missed each other they're not able to communicate and by the end of the show when they're all able to communicate again you get them singing together and you get the ensemble with them and I I kind of love that choice yeah the song itself is an internal struggle song so to watch this person sing like be your good boy I have to be perfect like will you love me type thing so he's obviously struggling with the fact and I think that that was one of the things that was done really well in this musical specifically in perfect is that that song felt like it fit because the words the lyrics in Alanis's song really matched the characterization of Nick Healy which doesn't happen throughout the entire musical but that was a moment as you were saying that like it did work and it worked well so I definitely agree that to, ha- to make that choice of him, you know, just like sitting at the kitchen table alone at, with a, one single chair, basically, just singing to the audience. And I love when that song builds the I live through you and he stands up and just like belts it out. It really shows you that this kid that has lived his entire life put on this pedestal has imperfections like everybody else. I'll live through you. I'll make you what I never was. If you're the best, well, maybe so am I. I think another song we cannot talk about Derek Klein in this musical without talking about him in Wake Up. Yes. That song, like we said earlier, was the song that we thought would be the Act 1 finale. It felt like an Act 1 finale. It was staged like an Act 1 finale. Yes, 100%. And specifically on that cast album, I didn't feel this way when we saw it, but now, again, listening to it as much as I have, Derek Klein's voice really cuts through and is sort of just, like, above everybody else, and you can really hear how great he is. It's almost like Derek Klein featuring the ensemble, even though it's such an ensemble song. It's It's credited as Frankie, Nick, and company. So it's the brother and sister getting to lead that. Frankie moment. is not even in that song for me. It is really only Nick. <laughs> she gets to like shade her mom right at the she beginning. She does, yeah. But yeah, that song is awesome. It was very exciting to get to see him perform for the first time. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention his push ups while singing because. Yes. <laughs> that was very important to me. Again, real life Troy Bolton. Imagine Derek Klena singing Scream. Exactly the way that it's done. <gasps> I can't. <laughs> yeah. With the, I'm picturing it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It would be amazing. I also love him in You Learn. Yeah. You Learn is great. You Learn is awesome. And it's one of those songs that, you know, like every character gets their little solo moment. And he also does some good acting in that song. 
Um, and then I think that it also... He's a really good actor. He is. <laughs> and I was going to say, I think that his acting pulls through for sure with his relationship with Catherine Gallagher's character, Bella. Because yeah, I think the two of them are really good. I definitely agree. And Catherine Gallagher is also someone that I've always known about her, but I've never seen her in anything. So to get to see her live was awesome. Um, she also has a voice that cuts through. Yeah. Specifically on Predator, um, which is her solo moment. And you are obsessed with your That's also the second song that Alanis wrote specifically for this musical. As you said earlier with the choreography, that's a moment that she's not alone on stage. And I think that that's correct to not have her alone on stage because the entire premise of her sexual assault is that people saw it and didn't say anything. So to have her have this moment where everybody is surrounding her, it was also, you know, the pictures were sent to people in her school and nobody believed her. So her character is the heaviest i would say in this musical apart from mj um Mm. to have two heavy storylines in one musical seems a bit crazy just two heavy storylines. well those were the heaviest i feel like the other storylines were not super heavy we haven't even talked about joe yet i also think that specifically in predator again as you were saying with the her seeing herself they also had her stand against a bed which i thought was a really interesting choice i guess so we could see so the audience could see we were like Uh, voyeuristic we were bystanders as well in that moment yeah which i think is a smart move especially when she felt again so alone i also think it's interesting that we talked about this a little bit earlier and this is something that we've talked about off the mic a bunch of times is that the end of the show when she sings no and to have her have that moment about that no one believed her until nick said something and for her to have that conversation with Derek Lena, which is also funny to me because those two are like best friends off stage. So to see them have this relationship that's so different on stage. Their actual friendship makes their on stage friendship and the on stage struggles they have like deeper Mm -hmm. because you you know, you would hope in real life if this were to happen that Derek Lena would speak up or that he has so much like love and respect for Catherine Gallagher that uh, he would be there for her in this moment and so you see like the love between them and the struggle is more than what it would be if it was two people who just met working on this project mm-hmm. um, and I, I like when like the personal relationships become close or not mirror but it allows people to like take chances and act together Um, And I just really think that their real life relationship like adds to what they're doing on stage. I also think it's interesting because, and this is obviously, I think, a book choice, but we know that they're in a friend group, but we don't know how good of friends that they are or ever were. Yeah, he does mention saying that they knew each other when they were young or they've known each other since they were young. But I also think that that's kind of strange that, you know, if you grew up with this person, you've been told not to go to the police about this because of your other best friend or you were fighting with yourself internally. However, I do think the storyline of someone in high school struggling to do or not do the right thing is super interesting and one that probably should have been focused on more other than some other storylines in this musical. Yes, I do think that they really brought up some interesting points, but I... 
I feel like they left a lot of them just hanging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this musical is not going to solve Me Too. You know, it's not going to solve a rape culture. Yeah. And, like, we know that. But sometimes it did just feel a little empty at the end. Like, okay, now what? And maybe it was just leaving us with things to think about. Yeah. Because there are still things and conversations that they had in that show that I do think about and think about the the way that society mirrored through the show thinks about, you know, sexual assaults and rape and a girl's sexuality. But it just did feel a bit unresolved. Yeah, I also think, and this is, again, something that we've discussed previously, the song No, which is Mm -hmm. specifically about that culture doesn't really fit for me in this musical because it's a song all about consent. There was no consent. She was unconscious. So there was, this song feels irrelevant to the storyline of this musical. I get what they were going for, but it felt too Mm. in your face. We're going to sing a song about consent, even though this isn't exactly how it played out. But again, maybe that is to your point of it's trying to leave you with something to think about after you leave. For sure. The issue of consent is much more complicated than saying yes or no. Bella, the character, was not in the position to say no. So it was much far, like much further beyond that point. But this is, I think, one of the problems with jukebox musicals is that you are stuck working with the songs that you have. And this was Alanis' song about consent and about sexual harassment. And she could have written a new song or they could have like mm-hmm. repurposed or rewritten the words for this. But this was her song about it. And so that is a limitation of jukebox musicals in an original musical they would be able to write a song specifically about the circumstances that happened. But this is the song they had and they had to kind of fit everything around it. Um, And I wonder if it made more sense at one point, but then as storylines changed or motivations changed and the song stayed there and it kind of was like, it's fine, it's fine. I don't know. Yeah. I also think, though, that the book could have helped with that. Oh, this book. Let's talk about the book. (laughs) Diablo Cody is an Oscar winner for Juno, which is a movie that I think is great. Um, and a lot of her movies are very critically acclaimed. However, I just want to talk Diablo. Like, what <laughs> was the thought process here? I have questions. Here's the thing. We talked about this. We talked about this briefly in our Way to Tony nomination episode. We also kind of touched on it in our year in review episode last year. Mm-hmm. To throw every single possible social issue into a musical is just so heavy handed. There's no reason for this. Yeah, it was a lot. I remember explaining it to my friend the day after we got back and her being like, oh my God, that's too much. And it it does feel like it is too much sometimes. Yeah. And again, I feel like, as I said earlier, you can sort of forgive some of the book because you love the music mm-hmm. and everything that's happening you, around it. You feel like you're at a rock concert. You're having so much fun. But then when you get to a scene, you're just like, oh, I forgot. We're still dealing with that. We're still on yeah, that. I okay. Almost, I almost feel like if it was sung through, it would have been better. <laughs> would have been interesting. We've kind of touched on the plot a little bit, but it just felt like piling one thing after another thing after another thing after another thing. And it felt very much like an issue musical. Yes. That they were very much trying to touch on current issues. And it felt very heavy handed. And I don't think it was successful 
in really addressing any of them. And I wonder if they'd just been a little bit more focused on one or another mm-hmm. than they would have been maybe a bit more successful. I can picture a storyline in my head where MJ doesn't even exist because we've seen the musical of a struggling parent before. Yes, I think the version that we've talked about, because I think maybe just because we're in that demographic, that age group, the stories that hit me and that were most impactful to me were 100% Frankie's story and like Bella's story. And so like through extension, Nick's story. Mm -hmm. And I think those two stories are kind of interwoven as well. And then... You know, there is the element of Frankie trying to impress her mom, which I think is fine in there too. Not impress her mom, but like feel like they don't relate. But adding on top of that, the... Drug overdose? The drug overdose, the drug addiction, plus the like sexless marriage that their parents are in. Like, I don't care. The parents' storyline is so irrelevant to I don't musical. care. I really don't. And I mean... Yeah, and let's be honest, you're not going to have a musical called Jag Little Pill without throwing some drugs into there. So I do understand to have the drug element, but I don't know that it needed to be for MJ. Like, in my mind, imagine Bella, she's going through this really difficult time. And turns to... Yeah, she turns to, like, self-medicating and ends up maybe having an overdose. And then, you know, like, maybe Nick's character feels guilty because of that. I don't know. I just feel like there was... You need to focus on something. And like you said, the teens in this musical are more interesting. We haven't even really touched on two other teens in this musical. You're right. You're right. Our favorite teens. Our favorite teens. Yeah. So there is, as you said, a plot that just piles on top of everything. And in that pile on top, we have a love triangle of Frankie, Phoenix, and Joe. And one of the most interesting scenes to us was when Frankie and Phoenix get caught having sex by Joe, who is the third person in this love triangle. And we'll talk about Joe in a second. But Joe chooses to tell Frankie's parents about what their daughter is doing. Whether that's the right or wrong thing, she was super upset. They were kind of in a relationship. Like she didn't, she just did it to do it. And at this point in the musical, we also know that Bella has been sexually assaulted. And for MJ to have the conversation with Frankie about how upset she is about someone having sex at her age, but also in the same breath, she did not care that Bella, at the time nobody knew, might or might not have been sexually assaulted. And Frankie says something along the lines of, because I chose it, it's wrong, but because she didn't have the choice, like, you don't care. And that is a storyline that I'm interested in. That was maybe, like, the most, not shocking, but the most thought-provoking moment of the whole show. You'd seen... Uh, MJ earlier talk about you know about Bella sometimes these things happen you have to be more careful you have to watch out for yourself she shouldn't have have been drinking why was she doing this and put all the blame on Bella whereas we know it was not Bella's fault like she was taken advantage of and when MJ reacted to Frankie's choice to have sex in this completely negative way it sent a message, her sexuality is only for others to take and not for herself. And I really think that was, they like hit on something that was so interesting to me. And I was like, oh, I want to talk about this more. Like this And is, then they just ended yeah, it. I was like, that's, that's all we're going to talk about this? I'm like, this is, this is what like our yeah. thesis statement should be. This was like the most interesting thing. The attitudes that we have towards women and sex and assault. And like, that's very of the moment. But we just kind of like 
glided over it and then like never talked about it again. Yeah, and especially for that to happen to a character that is so young and for teens that were seeing that musical at the time and were maybe going through the same thing to I think have that line be said and to resonate was so important, but they needed to build off of that because it, like you said, it's something that is not talked about. And the fact that she fully diminished a sexual assault because it was her fault. Why aren't we talking about this? I don't care about your drug overdose. Let's talk about this. That's like the thing that I think we've talked about the most since watching this musical. That was the like thing that impacted us the most and that has like kept us thinking the most Mm -hmm. from this musical. And maybe it's because we are women maybe it's because we are not so far from our teenage years at this point and so that's something that we think about just in our everyday life and to see it represented this way was interesting and like grabbed us in a way that like this mother's drug addiction did not I don't know yeah and I do agree that they did gloss over it I think the only thing that was positive to come out of that is Frankie gets up and leaves and she just can't talk to her parents i mean it's not positive obviously because you do not want your teen to run away but she just could not handle her mother's reaction to that specifically but also just she didn't care about her at the end of the day so i did like that she left and again that does lead to her singing on prodigal daughter but then it also gives us the greatest six minutes to exist in this musical one that was so highly anticipated in boston i'm talking about you ought to know this is another example of the limitations of a jukebox musical because we needed to have this song in here somewhere. So they created a character whose sole purpose was to come in at the 11 o'clock moment of this show and sing You Ought to Know. And that is her entire purpose in this show. I, yeah. I don't see another one. Do you? Me either. No. Okay. And I, it's kind of like sad because I think that Joe could have been an interesting character. I mean, I do love her and Celia singing Hand in My Pocket. I think mm. that that is a nice little introduction to their relationship. One that we said earlier that Joe is more into than Frankie seems to be. But I think that the harmonies on Hand in My Pocket are some of my favorite in this musical. So I think that's a really nice duet situation. But yes, I do agree that Joe was written to sing You Ought to Know. And I'm fine with that. Let's be clear. Everyone in this musical is serving as vocals, okay? Every single person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's not a weak spot. No, including the ensemble. Like, they are hitting it. It's really great. And to speak on the ensemble, specifically in this song, You Ought to Know, like we said earlier as this episode began, it is the Alanis song that everybody knows. If you don't know Alanis, you know you ought to know because you probably sang it at karaoke somewhere or you heard it sung by somebody else somewhere else. And it's also a song that is covered so often. I feel like people on American Idol sing it all the time. It's always just like a staple in everyone's playlist. It is one of the greatest breakup songs ever written. Yes, it also could quite possibly be like one of the greatest songs ever written. So we had heard about You Ought to Know being the standout moment of this musical when it was at ART in Boston, and we had heard that there was a mid-show standing ovation, which is super exciting. We were waiting, I feel, like for a snippet of it to come out from the live performance, and then when we had heard that the cast album was going to come out before we were seeing it, we were like, we need to not listen to it, and we need to specifically not listen to Lauren Patton saying you want to know. As difficult Mm -hmm. as that was, we were successful, and let me tell you, (laughs) it was 
everything that we wanted and more. I want you to know that I'm happy for you. I wish nothing but the best for you both. The premise of the scene is that Frankie is now in New York City and she doesn't know who to call. So it seems like she she calls her two people that she trusts, which is, I guess, Phoenix and Joe, even though she sort of now had a falling out with Joe. Mm-hmm. And she has this conversation with Phoenix, which is, again, a moment in the musical that I'm like, this is relatable to real life. She, it's very teenager. Yes. So Frankie tells Phoenix that she loves him and he doesn't say it back because he doesn't feel it at that time. And that is okay. And it's great that he doesn't say that. He wasn't feeling it. And they also we're only together for like two weeks. <laughs> he he didn't do anything wrong. He's just, you know, a 17-year-old boy who was like yeah. not there yet. And that's okay. And she also expects him to leave his mother and his sister, who we assume, I feel like it's kind of insinuated that his sister has some sort of disability or developmental delay. I think he does say there. that. Yeah. I think he does say that at some point. Yeah. And he's not ready to just leave them behind to come bail out his girlfriend when she doesn't know. First of all, I don't even know if they're boyfriend and girlfriend. I think they just like hooked up. <laughs> yeah. It, it's when you're a teenager, all emotions are super intense. And I think that's what Frankie is feeling in that moment. And Phoenix is just not at that point. And so it's heartbreaking for her, for him to mm-hmm. not be there and not like drop everything to come and get her when she asked him to. But like, he didn't do anything wrong. He's just yeah. a 17-year-old boy who's trying to like figure out his emotions the same way she is. Yeah. So when Phoenix isn't there for her, she goes back to Joe. And this is why Joe sings You Ought to Know. And for anybody that hasn't listened to the cast recording but knows the Alana song, we've flipped the switch on this. The genders are different on this um, because... It is a woman singing it, but about a woman, mm-hmm. not about a man. And it is a bit disappointing to me that Joe bails out Frankie because she sort of betrayed her, but she also really hands it to her in this song about how, like, we're through. I don't care. That's the thing. She calls Joe, even though they have had a falling out, and Joe comes because no matter what's happened, like, Joe will always be there for her. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, Joe's not going to let her get off so easily and still gives it to her in a way that's really satisfying for the audience because you as the audience have so much sympathy for Joe and want to see her kind of yell at her mm-hmm. and give her a piece of her mind. And so it's very fulfilling to watch that happen. Yes. And you ought to know is just so like cathartic for the characters and for the audience. Yeah, we were also saying that imagine being Celia on that stage Mm -hmm. as Lauren Patton is just singing to you and really intensely singing to you. She can't react. She just has to like be passive while the audience is losing their minds. She's got to like be peaceful. And on top of all of that, I mean, Lauren Patton is giving a vocal masterclass in this song and it's really amazing to see. And I mean, you know, there are moments when we watch certain things and you react with facial expression because you're like, oh my God, it's so good. And she can't do that. So I really love that she kept her, 
she kept herself into this musical and kept that character so i love that but i think as soon as this song started with the i want you to know and the way that she sings it it's so good and lauren penn has such an interesting tone to her voice that i feel like is not talked about enough and that she's not in enough shows she can really belt as we find out in this song and it's after the pause the audience claps in the middle of the song it's interesting the last time that it happened was when we saw hamilton in buffalo during the middle of yorktown people always like spontaneously applaud Mm -hmm. in the middle of that song and it was a very similar moment in that the build has been so much and the audience just can't hold it any longer and they have to applaud there and we know there's still two more minutes left of this song, but yeah. you have to let out your excitement in some way. But I also think what's super interesting about that is that the applause comes before her biggest vocal moments in that song. You know, it's after the applause that she's really going for it. It's already so good. Yeah, it's already so good. And like, how can it get better? And then it gets better. It's better. And then we bring in the female ensemble members to just saying, it's not fair. It's so good. And I mean, we will we will repost us dancing in our hotel room <laughs> to you ought to know because it was just it made us so excited and it's also something that we had been waiting for for almost a year it, it was thrilling it was really thrilling as the moment where i felt like it was the most like a rock concert and it was it was just everything we wanted it to be she slayed it she slayed she really did beyond you ought to know you would notice that we've been kind of quiet on who may be our favorite person in this show and we're gonna let ourselves go right here, right now, an hour into this podcast. Yeah, so we've talked about the character of Phoenix, but we have not mentioned the person that has played Phoenix. The biggest shout out to our favorite, no longer, it seems, ensemble member of this musical, Mm -hmm. Antonio Cipriano. Oh, what a cutie. We love him. We have obviously listened to Antonio sing before this musical. He was part a part of the Jimmy Awards a few years ago. And when he got cast for this musical, we were super excited because this was also the year that his friends were cast on Broadway. You know, Andrew Barth Feldman mm-hmm. was in Dear Evan Hansen. Renee Rapp is in Mean Girls. And these are fellow teens that are being cast in big shows and I know that you know a Broadway debut is not something that anybody takes lightly but when you make a Broadway debut at the age that these teens have been making their Broadway debuts it's extra exciting and he got to create this role this is not he's not taking over for somebody he created the role of Phoenix and that's his voice on the cast recording and his choices that will live in that script and in future adaptations of this musical so I think that's extra extra exciting than just making your Broadway debut yeah totally agree and his voice is actually so amazing and we talk about how yeah we talk about how Derek Lennon is a perfect singer I think Antonio is a perfect stylistic singer he really loves to play with verses and songs and just I mean follow him on Instagram and watch him sing all the time because he Mm -hmm. just ad-libs and riffs and does these things that you're like oh your voice is actually really good and I feel like we get a taste of that in ironic for sure but the greatest Phoenix Frankie song is head over feet. voices are so sweet in that song and they come across like very young and innocent and head over feet and they both have crazy voices but they're so 
their youth is able to shine through their um, vocal choices, and mm-hmm. I just love it. Another one that they're really good in is That I Would Be Good. I love that song. <laughs> A song that I forgot it existed after we saw the musical, but then listening to the cast recording, it's yeah. so good. It's so sweet. Yeah. That's where he does the unnecessary vibrato. Yes, he does. Um, also, you learn he does the unnecessary Yeah, he vibrato. does it again. The same one. But um, yeah, just to go back to Head Over Feet for a second, as great as it is vocally, and I think why it's, it is great vocally and also their acting choices is because Antonio Cipriano seems like he's a flirty teenager in his regular life. And I think that him and Celia have really great chemistry and really great young relationship chemistry, which we don't really get to see very often in musical theater. So to watch them have this flirt mance play out on stage was so sweet to see also the staging of that song of them climbing all over that jungle gym with the swings i loved everything about that (laughs) they're like hanging upside down they're they're swinging and the ensemble is spinning them in a circle it was it was so cute and in a musical that can feel heavy at times that was a nice little break in the plot to just have this really sweet moment between these two characters but yes to go back to that i would be good that is a song that i can't tell you what happened on stage because i do not remember that's how unmemorable it was on stage but on the cast recording man it is so good the three of their voices together lauren patton celia rose gooding and antonio cipriano on this three-part harmony is everything that i want about their parents' expectations of them, but really that's all we need to get. They all have these solo lines where you just get to hear them using their voices to their fullest. I really think that's maybe the best part of this musical is that every person in it has a chance to show off their voice to the fullest. Mm-hmm. And they really played with the orchestrations and the melodies to make make it successful for each person performing. Yeah, it's really great. And then he sort of leaves for a while between the whole like unprodigal daughter, you want to know, and then he comes back into play during You Learn. And it seems like they just let their relationship... No, he's there for no. He's at the, um, oh, right. he's at the protest right. scene. That song is just like out of my mind. Um. (laughs) No, but it's sweet because even though him and Frankie aren't quite a thing, he still shows up because that's still important. It's sweet to me. Well, this is the thing. Like his character was just like a good kid. He was he never did anything wrong. And I feel like that's how he is in his regular life as a good Italian boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. He's a good Italian boy. His name's Antonio. (laughs) Ben Platt. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sorry. We didn't even talk about my favorite scene in the entire musical, which we talked about in my funniest moment in the year in review. Oh my but God. When Antonio sleeps, sorry, not Antonio, when Phoenix sleeps with Frankie and they get caught by Joe, he then escapes down there quote-unquote fire escape and runs through the audience shirtless and it's hilarious i also think it was funnier to us because we just love him but that's true the audience was laughing it was pretty funny it was it was pretty funny but yeah so he comes back for the end of you learn when they sort of just you know wrap up this musical even though the plot is still not tied up and we get this great song and we get this great ensemble moment to end the show and 
I loved it. I love the mashup of you learn with thank you at the end. I think it's so good. You get a little bit of thank you before, but when you mash up thank you at the end of you learn, it, it's, I don't know, it gets me. That's the moment where like I tear up. As much as we think that this musical could potentially be bad, I also think that there are aspects of it that are amazing. And I really do think that that is due to this super strong ensemble. So at the end of the day, we had a great time. Critiques aside, and there are critiques that we have, I had a blast at this musical Mm -hmm. and would recommend to anyone. I think you just have to go in kind of prepared for what it is yes we didn't even talk about we'll shot her out now but diane paulus directed this musical and Mm -hmm. as we had have said throughout this episode there are direction choices that i think are super strong and there are others that i think that are not and is she maybe a heavy-handed director someone who maybe is too literal does that yeah maybe and i feel like working with a book that was so heavy-handed it just kind of made it a mess in general. I wonder how much of a collaboration that book was between Diane Paulus and Diablo Cody, especially because they both were there at the inception of the musical. And I know a lot of times stories and books and get created. You know, Diablo Cody wrote the book, but the storyline was there, was created with all of them. So I don't know if we can just directly put the blame on Diablo Cody. Like, is Diane Paulus also to blame for that storyline. I mean, let's be honest, like Diane Paulus has had a couple shows uh, start at ART and one of those was Waitress. And I know that your thoughts on Waitress are not the best. No, I, I really think my problems with Waitress maybe are kind of similar to my problems with Jagged Little Pill and that there's kind of like too much stuffed in mm-hmm. and you sometimes just need to edit. I'm always here for editing, you know, (laughs) but the cast recording of Waitress is really good. There are some songs that are like, oh, but then seeing it fully staged, I was like, oh, there is some fat that needs to be trimmed here. Yeah. I just remember you saying specifically after seeing Waitress before we had bought the tickets for Jagged, you were like, oh, am I going to hate Jagged? Because (laughs) I did not care for Waitress after all these years. Like, I'm going to speak for you, but I think that your thoughts on Jagged are better than your overall thoughts on Waitress. I think I had more fun at Jagged, maybe because my expectations weren't there as much because I saw it very early versus very late um, after it came out. But yeah, like I see other similarities now. The choreography, the way that the ensemble was used in Waitress is not that dissimilar from the way it's used in Jagged Little Pill. So I think as you've heard us say in this entire episode, we are mixed reactions to this musical. Again, we had such a great time. The performances are really stellar. And specifically now in a time of this Broadway shutdown, I really highly recommend turning to that cast album, giving it a listen, and, you know, just just letting that musical live off of there for now, because there are some amazing songs. I really don't think that there is a bad song on that cast recording, and the way that it is recorded 
makes you feel like you could be at that musical. You get that really rocky undertone of the drums and the electric guitar, but then you also get the super pretty head over feet and smiling. It's a great cast recording, and it's one, like I said, I've listened to it for the last three months, and I'm not tired of it. So because of how obsessed we've been with the Jagged cast recording, it is now time for our Obsessions of the Week. My obsession this week is Jagged Little Pill related. So we know that there are some new songs in Jagged Little Pill, Smiling and Predator. And Smiling, I think for me, is the one that really stands out because it, well, it's just gorgeous. But it stood out to someone else. Uh, Miss Renee Rapp posted a cover of herself singing it on her Instagram, but she's interrupted by someone right in the middle of it. And that person is Antonio Cipriano. his name like the italian way but like (laughs) whatever i think it actually is cipriano only because in this broadway shutdown he He says cipriano and i'm gonna tell you right now he's wrong well and i mean i haven't heard him say his own last name but in this broadway shutdown i've watched so many renee rapp antonio cipriano lives and she calls him sip i'm gonna tell you this right now as an italian speaking it's cipriano (laughs) (laughs) okay great (laughs) but antonio cipriano whatever whatever he wants to call himself. She's singing Smiling. She sounds gorgeous. And then he comes behind her. And the first time I saw this was before we saw the musical, so I did not understand what he was doing. But he comes behind her backwards doing the high note that Laurel Harris does on the cast recording. And I'm like, oh, he's funny. And then after seeing the musical and watching this video again, I understood why he's going backwards and doing like the yeah. backwards walking. And it makes yeah. me laugh 10 times more now. But I just yeah. think... She sounds gorgeous on it. He sounds great on it. He's and it's hitting just, that note. He's hitting it. He's got it right up there. <laughs> and it's just, you know, a minute long video that brings me joy anytime I watch it, which is quite often. I also watch it quite often. <laughs> it lives on Instagram. We'll repost the link. She wears a great hat in it. I don't know if I could pull off this hat, but I like the hat. <laughs> I mean, your obsession is Renee Rapp and Antonio Cipriano. And I mean, my obsession stems from both of them. So as I said, I've been watching their Instagram lives during this Broadway shutdown. And thank you for them for making those Instagram lives. And the other day they were singing on her Instagram with their I think he's their arranger, Tyler Kappa, and he yeah. lives quite close to Antonio. I think they're family friends. From what I understand, Tyler Kappa was his high school like vocal teacher. Yeah, I and think so. And working with Antonio inspired him to like go back to New York, and they've had this relationship continue. Yeah. So on this Instagram Live, they decided that it was musical theater night, and they were singing all of these different songs from shows. It's amazing. I wish that the live video still existed because there are some songs that Renee Rapp's voice is so good. They had Renee sing her song that she sang in her medley at the Jimmy's, which is from Big Fish. And let me tell you that since she sang that song, I have not stop listening to it so a shout out to big fish the musical and the song i don't need a roof it's such a stunning song and i remember watching the jimmy wars a couple years ago and i feel like i had another window open so i wasn't watching it but i heard renee sing this and i was like oh my god who is that and she's gonna win because her voice is so crazy and also what is this song because it's so beautiful i don't need 
I feel like I need to listen to more of Big Fish now because if there's more songs like that. Also, let's just shout out the fact that on that original Broadway cast album, it's Norbert Leo Butts and Kate Baldwin. Legends. So that is Broadway royalty right there. Kate Baldwin sings this song so beautifully. If you have not heard Renee sing it, really go and listen to Renee sing it. It's on the Jimmy Awards YouTube page. There, it's part of the medleys. I'll put in a clip of both of them in this episode. And she talked about on that Instagram live that I Don't Need a Roof is a song that you need some really serious breath control and that Kate Baldwin is just amazing, as we all know. So I'm now interested to maybe during this Broadway shutdown to listen to some cast recordings that I have never ventured into listening before. And I'm now interested in Big Fish. We've got the time. We do have the time. So I'm going to recommend that everybody listen to Big Fish cast recording, but specifically I Don't Need a Roof because it's such a stunning song. And I'm really sad that I didn't know about it before because I feel like I've missed out on some of these sleeper songs on these cast recordings. That's a great thing about the Jimmies is that they reach for so many different musicals and you get to hear different songs that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. She had mm-hmm. some good choices at her Jimmy's. Chaplin. Chaplin <laughs> is my fave. So yeah. shout out to that. Um, yeah, the Jimmy's this year are not going to be happening. And so I'm very sad about that. But it makes sense. I'm really going to miss those medleys. I, I totally agree. But while we're talking about the Jimmy Awards, before we wrap up this episode, um, just to continue on what is on social media right now. But every student that has had their performance canceled in high school or wherever they're performing. Um, Lori Bonanti has created this Sunshine Songs hashtag on Instagram and Twitter. So if you do want to support some of these students who haven't been able to have their musicals be played out on stage, there are some really great songs online. We've put some of them on our Instagram and we'll continue to retweet maybe or post some on our stories because it is really devastating that these kids can't perform these shows, but it is great to show the support right now because... We could all use some support right now. So especially for these kids, it it is I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I did some shows in high school, but never to the extent of what these kids do. And if you read the Jimmy Awards headline that came out about 96 nominees not being able to perform, it's devastating. But I also think that Andrew Barth Feldman put out a really great tweet about that being like, your journey won't be like mine and it won't be like Renee's, but it will be your own. So now is the time to, you know, like practice up on your stuff, put out those self tapes and get ready because everything will start up again. It's just a matter of when and everyone needs a little bit of inspiration and motivation right now. So we'll create our own Jimmy Awards online this year. Yes, we definitely will. I feel like that wraps up our obsessions and also our episode on Jagged Little Pill. As we said in this entire episode, go listen to that cast recording. And I am so interested to hear everybody's thoughts on that cast recording. If you have listened to it, if you haven't listened to it, we would love to hear about it. Also, if you want to listen to our previous episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. That is Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at off to be away podcast that's the number two and uh reach out to us during this broadway shutdown time we're here yeah and we'll see you guys next time bye Bye.